0: Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to the Clyde Podcast. It's Willow Weston, the founder and director of Clyde, and I am so excited to hand you this interview today. Before I tell you about it, I just want to remind you that you should come and check out our latest conferences and resources and curriculum on our website at wecollide.net. You're going to find so much fun goodies there, so make sure to check that out. But here is an interview that I just had. with Hannah Granowski-Barnett. She's the founder and CEO of Generation Distinct. She's an author, a speaker, a podcast host, a preacher. She is doing amazing things. And we had a conversation about the generational wounds that pass on from one generation to the next. We talked about dream shamers and why we shame each other's dreams. We talked about unleashing our passion and our calling. How do we figure out what our individual calling is? There's so many amazing things that Hannah had to say. She drops so so much wisdom. And man, I can see why putting her in a room full of young leaders, God just shows up. I know that he's going to show up in this podcast. So take a listen. Hannah, I'm so excited to sit down and talk to you and have a million questions I want to ask you about your life, about Generation Distinct. But before we start talking about all those things, I'm just curious, like, where are you sitting right now? Like, (laughs) where are you located? And like, tell us just that basic thing.
1: Yes. Well, first of all, it's such an honor to be here. Thank you for having me, for inviting me into such a special platform that you've created. I'm in Chicago right now, which is where I live. It is the best city in the entire world. <laughs> I grew up actually in Chicagoland, so very familiar with this area. And I always thought I was going to move away one day. And I started to travel more and more for work and for what I do, what's speaking and the more I travel to other cities, the more I recognize there's just nothing that compares to Chicago. I I love it. So um, I'm, I'm home in my city right now. I love that you think your hometown is the best
0: city in the world. That's how We're we so should feel home. About, about home. When yes. I think about Chicago, by the way, and I'm a Pacific Northwest girl, so yes. you might think this is funny, but I think <laughs> deep dish pizza and Oprah,
1: mm-hmm. that's like yes, Chicago that's to me. <laughs> That's fair. It's you know, it's so interesting. I have a lot of different items I hear that br- are brought to mind when people think of Chicago. Some, it's really good. Others, it's a lot of brokenness and pain. And 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 in many ways, both are true. Uh, but we really are trying to be voices for the beauty of Chicago because it's there and it's good. And we're we're we are excited about what God's doing in this city. Yeah.
0: Yeah. As you were sharing that, I mean, I definitely um, thought of Michael Jordan and the Bulls, but then things got <laughs> serious in my head for a second. And yes. I I do know, you know, kind of what you're alluding to that mm-hmm. violence and yes. and all the things that people are kind of um, seeing happen in Chicago, but also yes. kind of labeling Chicago as. And I love that you're saying, hey, God's at work here. Yes. And there's people yes. that are trying to bring hope and life. That's right. The goodness right. in the midst of it, and you're doing that. Mm-hmm. So there's so many questions I want to ask you. I mean, you're an author, speaker, a podcast host, you're a preacher, you're founder and CEO of Generation Distinct, which is a grassroots movement that equips young leaders with tools to identify their purpose and discover the wrong they were born to make right. Wow, like you do you ever get bored? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and no, in fact, just over the weekend, my husband and I were sitting in our favorite restaurant in Chicago, which is what usually makes us feel inspired and excited. And I was telling him about the three new business ideas I had and he, <laughs> beautiful soul that he is, was nodding and saying, all right, sounds great, which is exactly what I need in those moments. So no, I, I'm a dreamer by nature and so it's fun that in all of those roles, I, I get some some liberty and some freedom to continue to dream really big dreams.
0: I love that. I thought you were going to tell me that he started to have a panic attack at dinner. <laughs> just three more new ideas. Hey, I'm curious yes. how did your story unfold in such a way that you now lead a movement that equips young leaders to identify their purpose and discover the wrongs they were born to make right? I mean, how did your own personal story unfold yes. to get you yes. to this
1: place? Yes. I often say that I am the product of a lot of leaders who looked at me and saw potential on leadership before I did. And these were individuals who, they had no business believing in me. They had no evidence. They had no reason to invest in me. And yet they were gifted, I believe, the eyes of the father. And, and they used that And they they use their words verbally to affirm that and to call it out into me. And then to give me opportunity to start using that. And I truly believe that is one of the most beautiful gifts we can give to the people around us is by being generous with our words to identify the things in others that they might not see, but are within them that God can use to create change in the world. And it's interesting when I look at kind of my background and where I come from, I I think it's really important to look at where you've come from if you really want to know where you're going. And, you know, in many ways, in both of my family lines, there is a lot of of brokenness, you know, from the generations past and grandparents and great-grandparents and et cetera. I mean, it it runs the gamut. It's, you know, depression's you know, um, suicide, alcoholism, addiction, abuse—I mean, it's all there. And in many ways, statistically, I should be an addict. I should be um, contemplating taking my life. Often, I should be struggling with alcoholism. I should be—I should be anything but a, a leader of a movement helping people encounter Jesus. However, in my family line, there were chain breakers, and that's my dad on his side and my mom on her side. And because of the way that they broke chains and they fought against the things that they had better handed down, um, they were able to look at me, their daughter. They, they came to Jesus later in life and they were able to look at me at a, at a very young age and speak that there was purpose over my life, that I could blaze new trails that I could take the Grinowski name even further than they had taken it. And that was this legacy, this picture that was planted into me from a very young age. And because of that, I started to see myself as a leader. So it was first my parents and then it was leaders at my local church when i was 12 years old i had a local leader that saw that i was a pretty good communicator that i could tell stories that i was pretty um whether it was smart or not pretty confident on a stage and so she (laughs) gave me the permission to start telling bible stories to the kids on sunday mornings so 12 years old there i was teaching bible stories to these little kids and even those moments, I was I was feeling what it felt like to use my unique gifting to further the mission of Jesus through my local church and into the world. And then, when I was about seventeen, I had a pastor that said, "Hey, I, I see you as a speaker and as a leader." They put me in front of the, the main stage audience and had me give announcements on Sunday mornings. And, and I started to recognize I think I have leadership capabilities. And so they, they brought me onto their staff and I was leading a team of 40 volunteers when I was 18 years old. And, and these leaders, they just kept giving me opportunity before I had any reason to prove to them that I could handle it. And I did make mistakes and I failed and I had accidents and I, I did things wrong and I had no idea what I was doing. But I truly believe that one of the things that we use to push down the potential of the next generation is we tell them they have to prove to us why they can lead before they start leading. But in reality, if we look at the example of Jesus and his disciples, which is one of my favorite stories in all of scripture, Jesus gave these leadership opportunities to these young people who had nothing to offer but their willingness to follow Jesus. And I think we have a generation who want to follow Jesus, but leaders who aren't sure if we're ready to give the the reins over. And so anyway, I had leaders who gave me reins, who gave me opportunity. And so in all of that, I had this vision when I was 16 years old. Because of leaders who believed in me, parents who said I had vision and dreams and could imagine Big wild imaginings of what God wanted to do in my life. And the vision was simply this, that I was called, that God was inviting me to not just discover my own wrong I was born to make right. Cause I was, I was trying to figure it out. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to make an impact with my life. And God clearly said, it's not just for you, Hannah. You know that, that longing you have deep within you, you know that that hunger that you have to make wrong things right. You know how you desperately want so deeply to know how you were uniquely born to change the world. You're not only gonna hear your answer right now, but you're gonna identify that your calling is to help your generation answer that question as well. And from that moment, I recognized that that was my calling. My calling was to unleash other people into their callings. And so I started, I ran up to my bedroom at 16 years old and I had this whiteboard I started drawing out all these ideas and plans and strategies for how I could help my generation discover the wrong they were born to make right. But not just discover it, actually build a strategy to accomplish it. And so fast forward when I was 20 years old, I ended up kind of taking that full step to really commit to that vision And I just met with anyone who would listen to me. Again, I was surrounded by by mentors and leaders who believed in me and I pursued them. I sought them out. I would email people I didn't even know and say, can I have 30 minutes of your time? And I would walk in with a list of questions on how to start something and how to build and what I should do and what does this take? And after about two and a half years of asking a lot of questions. We became a nonprofit. We clarified our vision and we identified kind of the strategy that we would use to help young leaders around the world discover the wrong they were born to make right. And now we're getting to walk in that. And I truly believe all of that is really this story that God can use anybody. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter our family line. It doesn't matter what we have to offer. It doesn't matter what we think we need in order to do that thing God has called us to. There is nothing that can disqualify us from the call of God in our life because the moment that he created us for our calling was the moment that he qualified us for it. And so I believe that I am a walking testimony that God can use the most unlikely kind of person to create real lasting change in the world.
0: Well, now I have a hundred more questions to ask you than I planned. Let's go. Let's dive in. I love it. What an incredible story. And I want to rewind back to multiple things you said. You're so speaking my language. I mean, I became a Christian at 21, had this radical life change, wasn't raised in the church or to know Jesus or know the gospel. And I ended up getting called into ministry right away and... The church staff asked me if I would consider applying to be a pastoral intern and in preaching. And I was like, no way. Never, <laughs> never, never. Like, I'll, you know, visit elderly women in the nursing home. <laughs> I'll, like, play volleyball with students. I'll do right. But, like, right. I'm not going to preach. And it was actually a youth pastor who saw something in me I didn't see in myself. Yes. That changed my entire trajectory. Yes. And I think you were talking about that, this idea of, like, I call them, Potential spotters. Like when someone sees something in someone else, like call it out. It's literally free. It costs you That's nothing. Right. All you have to do is say, I see in you a bravery. I see yes. in you this ability to, to come up with entrepreneurial ideas. I yes. see in you a voice that, is, that can be used to free people from oppression. Like whatever you see in someone, you call yes. it out. It can literally changed someone's life. Right. That's and right. like That's it right. changed yours, it changed mine. All of a sudden, you know, Whatever twenty five years later, like I'm a preacher chick, but I never wanted to be. But it's because <laughs> someone saw something in me I didn't see in myself. And I think that's right. That's our God. Like God is the ultimate potential spotter. Like he he sees in us what we don't see in ourselves, right? Like that's he right. called Peter the rock before Peter was a rock. He was that's kind right. of a loser. He wasn't a rock. That's and, right. And So, I mean, I actually write about this in a Bible study called, Yes, You, and you're talking about how God can use us to do amazing things. That's the entire idea. What do you think, when you work with all these young people and you see them and they don't see in themselves what you see in them, Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you want to do? Do you just want to shake them and be like, (laughs) believe believe in your own yes. potential. I mean, what do you yes. want to say to young people when they cannot even see like the potential? Like to me, pot- unspotted yes. potential is probably the greatest resource we have right now to change the world.
1: All so we have true. To do is
0: call it out in each
1: other. That's right. That's right. Exactly. You know, it's so interesting because over and over when I'm on these, these calls with brilliant, sharp young leaders full of potential from all around the world, I hear a lot of the same negative soundtracks spiraling Mm -hmm. around their heads. And oftentimes they know exactly where they got that soundtrack from. They can tell you the exact moments that a parent spoke the word stupid over them and that they would always be a bad student. They remember the teacher that looked at them and said, you probably should not stay in this class because it's too hard for you. Um, they, they remember the moment that a friend called them that one name or a boss spoke death over them. They remember it so clearly. And the reality is, is we live in a world where we can't escape those kinds of people. It, it exists. So then the question has to be asked, What do we do with those words when we receive them? Because we are going to receive them at some point in our lives. I know I have, I've had bosses, I've had encounters, I've had friends who have spoken things that have threatened to become that soundtrack that defines who I am. Mm -hmm. But one of my mantras as a leader is that the words we speak hold power over our lives. A lot of young leaders I see are waiting for somebody to correct the broken soundtrack. Are waiting for somebody to, 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 to fix the lie that was told. And while that's important, and that's one thing that our organization is really big on, one of our mantras is simply the words, I believe in you. And when we say it over these young leaders, sometimes they have said that's the first time they've ever heard a leader say that to them. And so we're so passionate about speaking life for these young leaders. We say, I believe in you. We encourage them. We want to be their loudest fans and their biggest cheerleaders, but we also teach them that ultimately... They have to take ownership of it themselves as well. And they have to learn that when the lie comes up, when the doubt surfaces, when they start to come into agreement with the lie that they are not enough, that they cannot be the leader, that that they will never achieve the visions and dreams, they will always have themselves with them. So they have to have the ability and the skills to speak truth back to that lie and correct it. I truly believe we have a generation that is counting themselves out because of these. It's so, I, I don't think it's situational as much as it is mental, that there's these mental blocks that we've come to believe are true. I know I have mine. One of my coaches recently identified some of my limiting beliefs that I am, allowing to be my ceiling in my own leadership. And we've had to unpack these and, and digest them and really wrestle through them and, and identify true statements that I can speak back to them. And so I think it's really important for, for every person to recognize that we all have limiting beliefs, these negative soundtracks, and we've inherited them in some point in our journey. And we have to develop a toolbox so that when those moments come, when the triggers happen, when the pressure rises and we start to believe those lies again, that we have the tool, the tools we need to speak back to them with truth.
0: Absolutely. You, you mentioned earlier this beautiful thing that happened in your, what I would say, wounded family line. Yes. You know, one generation's wounds wounded another generation that wounded another yes. generation. You said yes. there was a chain breaker and it was your dad. Mm-hmm. And That is amazing. That is beautiful. I would imagine the work you do, you come across people who haven't had a chain breaker yet before them, but the invitation is that they can be a chain breaker, right? right? Like the entire, like collide, this ministry, like came and started from a place of me hiding in a closet with my baby because my mom was at the door and I, didn't want to deal with her addiction and the neglect and the abandonment I experienced. And here I was as an adult and I had this moment where I realized that my mother's mother was wounded and didn't get healing. She wounded my mother who wounded me. And here I was, and I had the potential to wound my own child. And I was in that closet that God said, I want you to open the door and step out because I want to do more healing in your life. So when you work with Young yes. people who say, "But, but, Hannah, I haven't had a chain breaker. My dad wasn't a chain breaker. My dad yes. was a heartbreaker. My dad wounded my life." Yes, the invitation and the power that Jesus Christ can come down and change you, and that will change your children and their children yes. and their children. Yes. What's the invitation you lay out for people where it needs to start with them?
1: You know, I think there is not a good example for a lot of these young leaders to look at as to even how to be a chain breaker. A lot of times the chain breaker themselves are not the people that have the loudest voice or the microphone, right? A lot of times the chain breakers have done the deep internal work in the background And it's in a way to set up the future, the future generations to have the voice. And so one of my passions has been getting to tell the story of how my dad was a chain breaker, because he is an incredible leader in his own right. He has done amazing things. And so many individuals look up to him and his leadership. However, he's not on the stage I'm the one in the sta- on the stage, and he's the one usually in the front row, oftentimes crying as he watches me oh, speak so and preach around the country, as he's mm-hmm. such a gift. And recently, at our last, we had a, an in person gathering for Generation Distinct where we invited all of our cohort, individ- uh, cohort members to the city of Chicago, and we held a three day mobilization event. And it was fantastic, it was powerful. And this was not planned. Um, However, both my parents attended because they're my greatest support system. And there was a moment when the whole room—not because of what anything I said— one of the other leaders and, and that we had brought in as a speaker had met my parents, had heard the story, was so moved that they got up on stage and they talked about it, and they had the whole room give a standing ovation to my parents who were sitting in the back, and they both were crying. And it was this moment where the room honored that what I've been able to accomplish in my life is only because of what my parents did in the private places, in the moments when there was no stage, no lights, no Instagram, nothing exciting or beautiful. In fact, it was hard and gritty and painful. A lot of boundaries put up, a lot of healing work a lot of community, a lot of confession, a lot of breaking, a lot of saying no, a lot of what is so unglamorous was done so that I can do what is often deemed as the flashy, glamorous life. And I, what I often say to these young leaders is that what we have to understand is that the most important things we'll do in our leadership is not the things that happen on a stage. It's what happens in the private places where we choose to do the messy work to do, to, to come into alignment with, with who God is and who God says we are. And it makes me think even of the story you just said, where your daughter will never fully understand Right? What it felt like to come out of the closet that one day. And there was no Instagram video. There was no paparazzi following you. There was no stage and lights in that moment. There was just one person making a choice for the future generations. And what I often say to these young leaders is I want you to think about your future children. And I want you to think about what kind of legacy you want to leave for them. Who do you want them to be? And who, how will you today put in the hard, work, the messy work to do the things so that one day your child will be the Hannah. Your child will be the person that will get to say, I had a parent that broke chains and changed my life forever. And I I really think it comes down to this mental shift we have to make as a generation, as as a world, that the most important things we do are not on stages, they're not glamorous, they're not flashy, they're not cool. The most important things we do are the behind the scenes, messy work. And I encourage these young leaders go to counseling. (laughs) I encourage these young leaders, identify the hurt in your past, acknowledge it, mourn it, be come to terms with it. But also, and this is something that I learned from my dad, I asked him, I ask him often, how did you do it? How did you so have this 180 where He was living in all of this brokenness and then he covered Jesus and he started living in all this beauty and goodness and holiness. How did you do it? And the thing he'll just say over and over with a smile on his face is, Hannah, I'm a new creation. I'm a new creation. And no, it wasn't so easy that he just said he was a new creation and everything changed. But there was something where I believe he, he so fully came into agreement with the newness of who God made him to be that he was no longer walking in the person he was. He, he fully believed he was new. And I think a lot of our generation today, unfortunately, a lot of us are walking in who we were and who our family says we are and who our family is, that we're a, we know we're a new creation, but we're holding on to that old creation because we can't let it go because in some ways it's gotten tied into our identity. And at some point, we have to say yes we we can acknowledge the trauma we have to heal from the trauma we have we it is real, but at some point we have to release it from our identity and claim that we are a new creation, and that's when we get to actually be a chain breaker
0: hmm. so
1: good i it's
0: making me think of a conversation I had with a woman in the last week who mm-hmm. asked to meet with me and just kind of lay it out just a traumatic traumatic childhood experience, adult experience. She's been through about everything you can imagine. And she was saying she knows God loves her. She knows that but she's completely isolated and lonely and feels like she doesn't have friends because she can't believe or even interact in a room like someone else could love her. So she pulls back Mm -hmm. and hides and doesn't engage and finds herself isolated with no community. And Mm -hmm. I got so worked up, like, talking to her that I almost felt like I got scary. I was like, I need (laughs) to calm down a little bit, but I was like... They're not separate because she kept trying to separate. I'm like, I believe this about God, but I don't believe this about myself. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like if you believe that God made you, God loves you, God purposes your life, that you matter, then you have to live into the belief that you claim when you walk into every room, right? You have to walk into a room and live into the worth that God claims upon your life. You can't just say, I believe God loves me, but then you walk into a room and you assume no one's going to love you. Yes, yes. So your dad, I love that you say yeah. he fully came into agreement Yes. with the yes. idea that God made him a new creation. Like you live into something as though it be true, even yes. if you're questioning whether it is. That's right. That's it, right. It's so powerful that your dad yes. did started doing that work and that impacted you and now you get to impact so many people. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about so much of your work and of course I stalked you so that I could figure out what I wanted to ask you and I have so many things to <laughs> ask you, but you talk a lot about being wired to abolish cultural complacency. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you can help us know as people who are listening in on this, if we've, how do we know if we're personally getting to a place where we're complacent?
1: Fantastic. It's interesting how, how much our, Our world, and I would even dare say the Christian culture, has become confused with the whole purpose of what this life is. It's interesting. I write about this in the book uh, called Generation Distinct as well that I wrote a couple of years ago how I will often find myself sitting with young leaders, whether that's on Zoom calls or on phone calls. I mean, I was just driving today and I just usually spend a lot of my drive time on phone calls with these young leaders from our Generation Distinct cohorts. And so I spend so much time with young leaders from all over the world. And oftentimes the conversation will go something like this. I will sit down with them and they will say two statements in the, in the span of an hour-long conversation. They might say it different, but these are two very common themes. One of them is they have never felt more burnt out, that they are exhausted, that they are stressed. Maybe for some of them, it's college is feeling overwhelming. They've said yes to a million commitments. They're in every club. The sports team is intense and they're still trying to have fun with their friends on the weekends and they're stressed and overwhelmed. At the same time, They will also say, I want to go after my purpose and my passion, but I just don't know how and I don't know where to start and I I don't know what to do. So so it's interesting because those two statements seem to contrast. They're doing more than ever before and yet they don't feel they're actually stepping into their passion or their purpose or what they were called to do. Now, Typically, if left to their own um, accord, what we'll often see, and I've done this myself, is that when we're stressed and overwhelmed, and we want to go after a purpose, but we feel that we have no capacity to do so, and we look at the list of things on our to-do list, the first things we cross off are often the things that are connected to our purpose in some way. Not because we don't want to go after our purpose. But because in some strange way, we have connected with, we've connected us going after our purpose with something that's indulgent, right? We think, oh, me pouring into that business that I believe God has called me to pour into on my nights and weekends instead of, I don't know, cooking a really fancy meal for myself and my family or Me investing my time to take that course that will set me up to start the podcast that I know God has called me to, instead of doing all of the small groups that I think my church wants me to be a part of, right? there, There's something about going after the things we think God has called us to that somehow feel like they're about us. And so we cross them off first. We say, well, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for this. I I don't have time for that mentoring relationship. I don't have time for that one commitment that, man, it it makes my heart come alive, but I have to, I have to be practical. I have to be an adult. We hear that so often. I have to be an adult. I have to pay bills. I have to cross off lift. I have to make dinner. I have to make sure I do all these things. Hmm. And again, those things are not bad, but so often, I think we're not saying no to our purpose on purpose. We're just so distracted by all the good stuff that we say no to the purpose of God on our lives. And I think we need to start honoring the call of God in our lives again. That cultural complacency is simply coming into agreement that we are too busy from all the life stuff to ever go after the call of God in our life. But sometimes I just ask this question and it's this, what if God has already given us everything we need to say yes to his call on our life? That one thing, the 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 idea that there is a wrong, we were born to make right, that we are an essential, pivotal part of God's redemptive plan for the world. So what if God has already given us everything we need to play our unique role and bringing about His redemptive purposes in the world. And He is leaning over the edge of heaven, watching to see what we're going to do with everything He has given us. But we are so busy with all of the good life things that we feel it would be irresponsible for us to say no to some good things, to go after God's purpose for our lives. Hmm. And so what I encourage a lot of people is to say, Hey, here's what I want you to do first. You have to come into agreement. Again, I'm really big on this idea of coming into agreement. You have to believe it first that there is actually a wrong you were born to make right. If you just believe you are one of masses, if you just believe that you kind of fit in with the crowd, if you just believe you're here to do what everybody else is here to do, and you're just there to fill a spot or be another body in a room, then you're never going to treat your life like you have a purpose that could change the world. But if you really believe there is a wrong you are born to make right, you will prioritize the time and you will make it an intentional act of worship as an as opposed to seeing it as a distraction from doing all the things that we convince ourselves we should be doing. Hey friends, as a special thank you for listening to our podcast, we wanted to give you all $10 off your tickets to our meant for more conference on March 3rd. At this conference, we will be hearing from Maddie Pruitt-Trout, Candy West, and Willow Weston. We are so excited to hear from these incredible women, so follow the ticket link in our show notes, use code PODCAST at checkout, and the discount is yours. Thank you so much for tuning in every week, and we hope to see you at the conference.
0: Mm. Hannah, this is so good. I want to grab your book and read the whole thing. You're, you're preaching to... This mom over here, that Mm -hmm. I just had a moment on my back deck with my 19 year old son who decided to not go back to college and came Mm -hmm. home and let us know, which was a really brave decision on his part. But of course, you could imagine as parents, yes, how you might feel about that decision, yes, yes, absolutely. About a month and a half after he made that big decision, he recently sat on the back porch and vulnerably shared with me a dream he has for his life, a very big dream. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily one that a lot of parents would say, yeah, go for that instead of college. Yes, And I... I think what you're talking about, when I sat there, I had a moment yes. where you're logical, mm-hmm. fearful, live in the world, and this is the yes. way the world works, and this is the yes. norm, and you got to follow the norm. I had a moment in that time where I could literally mm-hmm. dream shame. Yes, absolutely. And be like, no, you got to be responsible. You got to adult, you got to do the things. Right. Or I can fuel the fire to a dream that who am I to say isn't from God? And so I had this moment where I'm like, as a parent, going, hey, like I'm going to be here to support you to lean into your dream while also yes. taking care of some of your responsibilities Yes, you can't yes. just live in a van down by a river. But <laughs> you're talking about something really interesting that we feel like it's self-indulgent. We almost yes. live in a culture where we shame people Yes. Mm-hmm. for big dreams. Why do you think
1: we're doing that to each other? We shame people for big dreams until they come into fruition. Then we're all jealous of that person. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I I think it's because I, I think oftentimes, I, I think there's a variety of different reasons. One of which might be somebody told us that our dreams were irresponsible at one point. And then we came into agreement with it and we denied them. And so when somebody asks us, it's hard fully for us to want something for somebody else that we were not able to get, have for ourselves. I also think it's a brilliant scheme of the enemy if he were to convince us that it is irresponsible to go after God's call in our life, because I think it'd be really hard to convince us that it wouldn't be meaningful. I think it'd be really hard for him to convince us that it wouldn't change lives. We we can believe all those things, but how brilliant for him to use shame, one of the most powerful forces to shut down so many of the dreams God has placed in his children. So one of the things I really encourage people to do really practically, and this is when I did right when I was starting Generation Instinct. And again, I give a lot of credit to leaders around me, including my parents who, when I was that 20 year old that said, hey, I want to invest my time into launching this thing called Generation Instinct. They said, we believe in you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's do it. How can we support you? And so I, I give you so much credit as a mom that I think in that moment, I had to really, because there was a lot of moments where I did think I was being irresponsible. I took up five different odd jobs to support myself in starting Generation Sync because I needed to support myself in some way, but I couldn't have the structure of a nine to five. And so I was crazy. I was making no money and I was hustling and had very little time. But to kind of give myself some sort of focus in that season, I would literally block out the hours I was spending on Generation Instinct in my calendar, and I would label them as work. I, I didn't label my side jobs, the things that gave me money as my work, as my job. I I, I called Generation Instinct my job before it was actually ever my job. Because it was the language I needed to convince myself that there was value to it, that it mattered, that it wasn't just my 20-year-old dreamer making something out of nothing. It wasn't just me trying to convince myself that I was doing something and I was just wasting my time. It was calling it work before it was actually my job that gave it some some importance in my mind. And it again, it doesn't mean that I wasn't actually making money. I was, and I was in many ways working harder than I've ever worked. But I think honoring it by calling it work, by prioritizing it, by saying this is the most important thing. And what if we flipped everything upside down and said, our callings is the most important part of our life, and the thing we do to make money is there to supplement that dream. And sometimes they overlap and sometimes they won't. But we can honor the non-paid work in our life just as much as we as we honor the paid work. And that looks different for every single person, right? For You know, I have um, a really close friend and she and I are so different, but both have big callings. And her big calling, she has three kids under the age of five and she is a fantastic mom. And she does a fantastic job of not just engaging in her kids and discipling them, but she also has done this amazing job of using her season To reach other moms and help them encounter the love of Jesus. So she hosts these story times in her community and she doesn't say she's a Christian. She just hosts these moms they all get together and then it sparks conversations about Jesus. And she's literally telling moms about Jesus and bringing them to church with her through starting these relationships at these mom gatherings that she's launching. And, And again, she could convince herself that her job is to just be with her kids and she has to prioritize that. But she's also said, no, I have I have time, I have I have a priority because I have a call from God to help moms know Jesus. So I'm gonna make that time a priority. And you know what, her kids are watching her make that time a priority to bring her kids with her, to go to these story times to help these moms know Jesus. And so it looks different for every person, but we have to prioritize the call of God in our lives. It's not indulgent, it's honoring to God. And I think if we put it in our calendar, if we mark it off, we give it a different kind of reverence and and respect.
0: Such a good word. You keep bringing up this phrase, uh, discovering the wrong we were born to make right. Can you help us understand why that's such a passion for you? And how do we uniquely
1: figure that out for ourselves? Absolutely. When I was 16, that was what I wanted more than anything. I wanted to change the world. I had this longing to make an impact with my life. I just had no idea how to do it. I didn't know where to start. I I felt really alone in that desire. And I also wondered is there definitely a passion for me to discover? Is is it out there? Is it how, where am I looking for it? What do I do when I find it? What does this process even look like? And it was through that process of of prayer and journaling and meeting with mentors and reading books. And literally, I had this moment. I was 16 years old, and I remember writing my journal, all right, God, here's my life. It is all yours. I want to do something with my life that matters for your kingdom. You can do whatever you want to do with my life, and it's yours. And I felt that I didn't hear him for a while. And I was confused because I had just given him my life, and I thought that meant he was gonna give me that purpose and give me that discovery really quickly back in return. And when I found through that process is absolute, I mean, I was I was studying, I was praying, I was, I was unpacking scripture, and what I what I, I discovered that process says is, is two things. One is there is no doubt biblically that there is. There is, n- there is no two people who are the same, that we were, we were not this random occurrence that happened on earth, but there is intentionality around our lives and around our placement, around who we are and who are, who we were placed around there. There is this, this clear evidence all throughout scripture that when somebody was called by God, they were just called to follow him for themselves, but they were invited into this mission to make something wrong in the world. Right, we see this over and over. I mean, if you just go through scripture, when God called David, when God called Esther, when God called Mary, when God called Peter, when God called Gideon, when God called Joshua, when God called um, Ruth, you know, whoever it was, when God called these people, it was not just, hey, come follow me and obey my laws and be a good follower of me. It was come and follow me and do this piece of my work. And it was unique to every single human being. Mary, it was to be the mother of Jesus. Peter, it was to be the rock of the church. David, I mean, he literally led a nation. Esther, it was to speak truth to power. And every single person, their calling was not the same, Mm -hmm. which made me understand, then why do we so often believe that the only way that we can follow Jesus is by saying yes, and then doing whatever we're seeing people around us do. How? How wild would it be if there was actually, just just like every person in Scripture, a wrong that we were born to make right? But as I started to come into agreement with that, I I started to say, okay, I believe that. That's clear. It's biblical. It makes sense to me. And man, I want to discover that. I I started to expect this moment that would happen. And in my mind, the clouds are going to part. The music was going to play. And this loud booming voice would just tell me, "This <laughs> is the wrong year, born, make right." And and maybe that was just in my own head, but when that didn't happen, I got confused, and I started to ask a lot of questions as to why. And what I recognize is that our culture is infatuated with this idea of discovering our passion. Right? We we talk about it. It's big in culture. It's big everywhere we look. But the way that we talk about it sometimes seems to place a lot of the responsibility for actually, actually discovering that passion on some outside source, on somebody else, that we have to discover it, that it's out there waiting for us, and we have to go find it, right? But what that does is it puts the ownership on somebody else. And if we're if we're wanting to discover our passion, then we just have to wait until that passion eventually reveals itself, right? But again, if we believe that God has already given us everything we need to say yes, everything we need to say to step into the call of God in our life, then what if it's already there within us based on our stories and our experiences and our surroundings and our place? And all we have to do is see the wrong things around us and start making them right. That's not hard. It's not hard to look. It can feel overwhelming to say, "What's my passion?" I don't know. There's a million passions. What is not overwhelming? I know exactly. If I look in my neighborhood, if in Chicago, if I looked at my window, I could see a lot of wrong. I could see a lot of evil. I could see a lot of heartbreak. I could see a lot of isolation. I could see a lot of sadness. I could see what's wrong in the world, and I could, in one moment, have an idea of how to make one wrong thing right in the world. And in that process, I believe this is, this is one of the most important things I believe in this process is that might not be our big wrong we were born make right, but I believe we discover our purpose, our passions as we make wrong things right in the world. It will be in the process of doing in the midst of the mess of injustice and in the mess of real relationships, real moments of getting outside of our comfort zones. It'll be when we are literally in the process of making wrong things right in the world that God will tap us on the shoulder and say, "Hey, that was it. What you just saw and felt and experienced, that was the wrong. You were born to make right." For me, it's you know, when I am sitting and talking with young leaders and there's a moment of breakthrough where they choose to step into their calling and they are starting to make wrong things right in the world. And that lights my heart on fire. And I feel, and I know that is the unique wrong Osborne Make Right is taking young leaders who do not think they have a passion or a calling and helping them actually step into it. But I didn't find it, by just sitting on zoom calls with young leaders i found it in the process as i served these refugee kids i remember when i was younger i would volunteer and tutor these these refugee students and there was nothing amazing about it i didn't know that was my passion yet i just started tutoring these kids and they were fourth and fifth graders But every time they had these breakthroughs or these moments, I knew there was something happening in me that helped lead me, right? So it wasn't the first step that was the ultimate step. It was the first step that led me to the next step that led me to the next step. And I just think so often we overcomplicate this process. But I want to encourage every single person, you can literally start discovering the wrong you're going to make right right now by looking out your window and seeing what is one wrong that I can make right. Maybe you'll see a neighbor who you haven't talked to in a year. and. And maybe they're really lonely after the last couple of years of COVID and you can walk up to them and you can say, hey, I'm sorry we haven't chat in a while, but do you want to go get a cup of coffee? That's a wrong. They might be lonely that you can make, right? It, It goes on and on and on. Look for wrongs and make them right. And in that process, you'll discover the wrong that you were born to make right. I love that so
0: much because I think we live in a time and in a generation where people are waiting for the big thing instead of doing the small. And I think of scripture and the idea that when we're faithful with little, he gives us more and we're waiting for the more instead of doing the little. And you're saying, you'll figure it out along the way. Jesus is kind of an along the way God. So I love that so much. I know we're running out of time, Hannah, and there's so many things I want to ask you. I'm probably just going to need to fly you out here to speak at one of our conferences (laughs) because I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Um, You'll have to come hang out and you'll need an umbrella and we don't have good deep dish pizza, but I have to, I have to ask you (laughs) what's that? I said, I'll bring it with. Okay, sweet, sweet. I like cold pizza. I have to ask you before we close this up, because you're inviting people to start to just look out their window and do the small like, see a need, meet a need, yes. you know, see it wrong, make it right, start there, and slowly it'll unfold and you'll start to see more of your purpose, more of your calling. Yes. When someone starts to see their purpose and calling unfold Mm -hmm. and it gets, it gets big and it gets overwhelming Mm -hmm. and you can understand this, you know, at 20 years old, you'd already started speaking, writing, doing youth ministry, you know, did ministry in the DR, you graduated from college, you launched Generation Distinct. When God starts unfolding like Mm -hmm. a big dream after a lot of faithfulness little by little by little. Hmm. how, How do you, like what's your advice for the people who are like, I don't know if I have, like, yeah. I don't know if I have what it takes. I don't know if I can handle the naysayers. I don't I'm scared. Like fear sets in because yeah. um, they've moved past dream shame. And instead they're staring a big dream right square in the
1: face and God is unfolding it. And they're like, Oh, holy yes. cow. Yes. I think the more we stay connected to how normal we really are, the less, big it really feels and the less scary that it is, right? I have this persona of myself and this is probably a funny example, but when I am feeling a little bit too overwhelmed with the magnitude of what we're doing, I'll actually look at my husband and say, I need to just be normal, Hannah, for a little bit. And what that means is I need to do something that doesn't feel this big and scary, I just need to feel like a normal human called to do the things that Jesus invites us into. It means I probably just need to go up to the rooftop on our apartment building and hang out with our neighbors. Hmm. They don't care that I'm leading a nonprofit that reaches young leaders. They really don't. In fact, most of them don't care at all that I love Jesus, but they just care that I'm sitting with them and that I'm a friend that they know named Hannah, and her and her husband loves to hang out with them and make jokes and grill out with them. Or it means I need to just go and get coffee with one of the young women I disciple in my local community. Or it means I need to go talk to Tony, who is the homeless guy in our neighborhood, who sits on our corner. And my husband and I just love to talk with him. And and none of these people care that we're doing something that feels really big to us. And I think that's really good. Something I say to Aaron a lot is, "Hun, if we ever get to the point where we're too busy for local ministry, we're shutting it down. We're taking a pause. We're stopping the speaking. We're stopping the global ministry. We're going to stop it all because this is always the first priority. And it's interesting because Jesus actually commands us to live like that. The the last things he said were, were not go out and make, you know, this huge global impact by launching a worldwide movement. He didn't say, make sure you go speak on a lot of stages. He said, go out, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptized in the name of the Son, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for me, that just looks like if I can, if I do not have capacity or space in my life to be the normal follower of Jesus, doing the normal basics of what it means to follow him, then I I think I'm too much. I'm too full of myself. I, I think I'm too important. And I'm really not. I'm just one follower of Jesus doing local ministry and hoping that I can extend that outside and allow it to spill over onto what I'm trying to do globally as well. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
1: I would encourage people, if it ever seems too scary overwhelming, hit pause, go hang out with somebody who thinks you're really normal, who doesn't care what you're doing, and who really is not going to even stroke your ego, who's not going to say, oh my goodness, you must be so overwhelmed with all the important things you're doing, But really, they're going to be a little bit annoyed that they haven't seen you up on the rooftop in a while, or they haven't seen you at the local park. And they're going to give you a hard time because they just think you're normal. And that's really good. And so I would just say, spend time with people that need Jesus, because they're going to remind you of the things that really matter.
0: Mm. I absolutely love the reminder to... Love on the people that God puts in our path. That's always like first and foremost, our call and to never lose sight of it while we're also leaning into bigger dreams. Hannah, it's been so fun to talk to you. I know that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to check out what you're doing. How can they Mm -hmm. do that?
1: So kind. You are a fantastic interviewer. I just want to honor you and thank you for asking such beautiful questions, opportunities for me to get to share my heart and what God has call me to it is such an honor and privilege. And I, I don't take that lightly. So thank you for that gift. Oh, if anyone wants to connect, I would love that. You can find me on Instagram, hannah.g.barnett. You can also find hannahgranowski.com, which is where a lot of my speaking is or podcasts that I have been on. You can find the Generation Sync podcast on Spotify or Apple podcasts. You can find the book at, on Amazon. Or generationistinct.com if you are a young leader who wants to discover the wrong, you were born to make right. We have cohorts that start every few months and we would love to invite you to apply for one of those cohorts.
0: Very cool. Thank you, Hannah.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Friend,
0: I hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. There were so many things. I was taking ravenous notes for my own life. For my kids' lives, for my uh, friends' lives and the women that I minister to, I loved the idea that she sort of set out on the table that somehow we feel like our dreams that almost we should be ashamed of having dreams that it's self-indulgent and it's a it's a really interesting idea and I I love her challenge to begin to think about leaning into your dreams as though it is a job before you see the actual job unfold and there's so many amazing things she challenged us to I don't know where you're at today But my greatest hope is that somehow, some way, the God who shows up on people's scenes and He meets them where they're at, that He'd be showing up to you this week and that you would sense that you have a distinct purpose and a distinct calling. And that as you begin to live into and lean into being faithful to the small things, He'll unfold more and more and more of what you were made and destined and called to do. So friend, keep colliding and we'll catch you next week.